Welcome to Engage Your Tribe, a podcast about the art and science of audience engagement. I'm Jeremy Shear, founder and CEO of Tribal Knowledge Podcasting, and my guest is Ned Karen, VP of Marketing at Gray Associates. Ned, it's good to see you again. Great to have you on the podcast. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about Gray Associates. Sure. We are a um, higher education software and services company. We are exclusive to the higher education industry. Basically, what we do is we offer software that allows deans, provosts, and presidents to really look at and manage their academic program portfolio, all the way from the start of what programs should I offer, what new programs are out there, to how do I grow my current program base, to kind of understanding the economics of their programs, and all the way down to, all right, some of these programs I might have to sunset moving forward. How do I make that decisions and what is best for my community and my school looking at our academic program portfolio? Okay, really interesting. And it seems like this would be an interesting time for you guys because this is an interesting time for the world of higher education, right? Well, it's 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 kind of fast moving and really quickly yeah. changing with um a lot of what's going on in higher education was pre-COVID, but as soon as COVID hit, basically all the data that was mm. out there changed immediately because I would say higher education and what the decisions they make are based on historical data. And as soon as you have an event like COVID with the pandemic and they send everybody home and they're going online happens, the next thing you know is all that old historical data is like mm. pre-COVID and after COVID. What are the results afterwards and stuff like that? So the idea of managing and using data has sped up much more rapidly than it probably would have otherwise. And people decided that they really need to have a culture change and kind of incorporate data into their decision-making process and into their day-to-day lives of managing their academic programs. It's been turbulent. It's been kind of crazy. But for the most part, it seems like a lot of the schools have come out um, better for it on the higher, on the other side. And they're also they're kind of able to provide more access to kids now, which a lot of our software does help with that because you have the opportunity not just to, all right, you have to go to uh, school. You have to sit down. You got to work in class. You can be a hybrid. You can be home. They might not have been great online, but they were kind of forced to get there. And we've seen that change really, really shocked the world in terms yeah. of how people look at academic programs. I, I will say one of the funniest or most interesting about it, though, is we do a lot of data analytics and we always compare online searches for programs that are offered online to programs that are offered on campus. And as soon as about six months after the pandemic hit, for the first time in about three years, the search has changed. And all of a sudden, all the kids that have been mm. taking online programs were searching for on-campus programs again. Because I think they were just kind of like, I'm not going to be sitting in my mom's basement taking classes anymore. I need to get back to school. So it's been a whirlwind and a roller coaster. But also, I think it's been seen, I hate to say it, honestly, but sometimes a crisis does lead to some positive change. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes a crisis can lead to opportunity and all kinds of innovation and change. I mean, I think we've seen it across the the spectrum, especially in tech, especially in communication technologies and 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 in, in many industries, right? I, I think that's just just true. So now let's talk about your audience, the folks that you're trying to engage. I think you you already began to describe them, the deans, the provosts. Is that right? Is is that how you conceive of if who your audience for your marketing is? Mostly for I would say deans, provosts, but we will go all the way up to the chancellor and the president okay. level, the chief financial officer. We do a lot of economics data as well. And then we also get into our end users, which tend to really end up being the institutional researchers and a lot more the deans. And what our software does is really help those people. It saves them tons of 
hours of work. We had one institutional researcher literally told us this used to take me an entire month. The month of October, I would sit down and do this analyst and now it's right at my fingertips. So those are kind of the, the broad spectrum of thing. But we also have a lot of, I would say, state leaders as well. They're looking to make academic program decisions with um, true facts behind them, right? Instead of taking shots in the dark, we, we talk to a lot of the people that do grants and also write out budgets and what the state is spending on these higher education programs. So they are sometimes come to us and look for the bang for their buck. Like if we are giving money to these schools, what programs should those schools be investing in? So we actually know that the kids are going to come out. One, the kids are interested in the program. Two, there's a job. And three, what is the competition like in our own state? Are we losing kids to online programs out of state? Are we not attracting our own students to stay in school? So a lot of the state um, educators as well and what manage this, they really look into our programs and our databases to make sure that they're being competitive and how they can improve their state educational systems. And, and it sounds like part of your challenge in marketing is to that you're marketing to, as you just described, a whole ra- different range of different types of prospects, all related, but all different as well, right? With different needs coming from different different set of biases and assumptions and all that. So- what is your, describe your strategy. How do you, what do you need to do? What are your strategies for having the conversations that you need to be having with these variety of decision makers? I would say the number one thing is you have to build trust. We started out years ago as a primary consulting company. And when you're a consulting company, you already have that stigmatism set about you. When you're a consulting company, when your CEO's name is Bob (laughs) and everybody's watched office space, you have a double stigmatism because everybody kind of understands what is happening. So when we moved into software and services, we really had to make sure we, number one, were trustworthy. We are not here. We are champions of higher education. We're not some people that are just like throwing numbers up against the wall and sitting out here saying, this is what you have to do. We know better than you. We really had to come back to and establish that we truly believe in the mission of higher education and that these schools, we understand you're not there to make money. You are there to fund your mission and provide opportunity for students. And so we started with that approach, right? We came in as champions of higher education and we were we understood the school's mission. And after that, what we had to do is kind of fall on our sort of list a little bit and tell stories about how we've learned by doing, right? We're not going to sit there and come in and like, we have all this data and this is what you should do. We've helped implement it. We've seen our mistakes. We've learned from our mistakes and we've kind of documented it. Whereas a lot of people like just run out there and keep throwing the next thing after somebody, the next thing after somebody. So by building up this trust and building up that we are truly champions of higher education, we've been able to kind of slowly build our brand up as very reputable and champions of higher ed, like I keep hammering that home, but that is something we truly believe. And the second part is people will then listen to us a lot more. We will get partners that have helped develop our software in higher education. We get partners from higher ed institutions that will be more than happy to speak with us and help us really get our message out there. So that was kind of our big strategy at first. And that was awesome until you end up also hitting this giant change, shift of change with universities, where the way they did things, they weren't they weren't as much using data. And the other thing we really pushed with that is you don't have to be data driven. And I think when companies like mine come in and start hammering home, data is the only way and this is what you do, people get a bad taste in their mouth. We don't know everything. The data doesn't know everything. And the data can always be manipulated. So we really mm. kind of came back to an idea of data informed. Here's the information. It is out there. And you can make better decisions mm. using it. 
But the heart of the matter is you guys still are the, the experts in the, in the, you know your own domain better than we do. So use our data and use it any way you want, but you still understand your mission. You still understand your town and your community because a lot of these institutions, they are, they are the anchors of their community, right? I grew up in a small, small community in Bellows Falls and every single school there, 20% of the, the towns that have a college in Vermont, they end up, they hire probably 20, 30% of the town's employees. So it's really, people understand their community in the area. So it was, it was data informed, not data driven. And that also kind of helped us relate to our uh, client base a lot more. Okay. Wow. That's a really cool distinction. And I totally get it. I live in a college town. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. It's home of Indiana University. And yeah, you know, the university is one of the, the is one of the largest employers in the town. And uh, you're, you're totally right. So but there's so much to unpack there. So let's go back to what you said about earning trust. And you mentioned that you guys learn from mistakes. So can you say a little bit more about that? Can you give a specific example of how you've learned over the years, like how you earned that trust. I understand that you got to a point where where you could honestly say, and and you were and people were believing that yes, you get higher education. You know, you believe in the mission. But how did you get there? What did it actually? What did it look like along the way? Like, what are some specific examples? I can give a just. Here's the thing. When I came from a background where I worked at Microsoft before and for a data analytics company that launched the United States. So I had a huge business background. And when you walk into a higher education institute and you start spouting off these like acronyms and all these things you've learned from previous worlds, that, that kind of really slaps people the wrong way. And you almost have to step back and like, you have to realize that these people are there to educate and that they are there to try to provide access to as many people as possible to better their careers. And so you've got to take the business part of it out of it. And at first, when we really started looking at some of these um, universities, we came right in with the economics and here's the data. And we were much more, I would say, data driven. Like here, the numbers of the student demand score, the employment score and the competition score all say this is a terrible program, right? And we were like, well, you probably should get rid of this program. And looking at our first couple of iterations doing that, for every program, that's not the right answer. And we kind of had to swallow our pride because one thing we, we really have to apply is this program is really important to the mission of the school. This is their, their, their value prop. This is what they're known for. And this is what maybe sometimes they have grants to do regardless of the number of students that are taking these programs. And there's employers in those towns that they want to help um, have a funnel to. So we really had to take a step back and really make sure we were doing things the correct way and not just being cut this program because of these numbers. And we had to incorporate a couple other things into our data and analytics, which was what is the current mission and what is the degree fit? And we've slowly added these pieces over time to kind of make up a much more balanced answer. When we first started out, we had I think three, four data points, we're now up to 50. So if we had just stuck with the economic side of things, when we first started out, we would have fallen on our faces. We would have been a lot of like our competition out there that only looks at the economic side of things. And that's not really getting to the heart of what an institution is, right? You really have to also look at what the school's mission is, as well as what the student demand is for that thing. And then you can come up with a really great answer. And we've built on this years and years and years. And We've um, we've ended up hiring and kind of working with uh, some really 
great thought leaders. Um, Dr. William Massey, Bill Massey, from he was the uh, CFO at Stanford back in the day. And he's kind of opened our eyes up until academic resource modeling and these things. So we've had people come in and take some of our initial thoughts and turn it on their heads and kind of give us a, a, a rude awakening. Um, the other thing is when we, we do some workshops and stuff, and when we walk in and we assume mm-hmm. one thing, half the time we're completely wrong. We, we always thought there'd be a lot of pushback in our workshops, and we were really nervous about that because we mm-hmm. are we are still bringing in software that's foreign to people. We're bringing in new ways of doing things that's foreign to people. And, of course, you have that idea that, okay, these, these people have been in higher education for so long. They are going to be beating the door back against us. They're not going to really want to listen to us. And that, that premonition was wrong too, is what we've learned is if you provide data to people and you back it up where it comes from, all of a sudden the decisions they're making, especially when they are in a group setting, become a lot more civil. They might not like them, but they know where they came from. They know there's actually some real thought behind them versus um, way back in the day. A lot of this decision-making was done thought down. I mean, it still is. If you look at the University of Vermont recently, they they cut a lot of programs and stuff and always, we're always asking is, is this um, the correct way to do it? Where we really believe in a, a bringing people together and making decisions bottom up. So that was another thing we've changed over the years is how, who, who comes in and sits at the table. We've expanded um, that idea in our company a lot more where don't just have the administration, the top people in there. Let's really expand it to include, I would say the deans and the people that really understand their departments more. And it became a much more inclusive process in the, the results actually are much better. The decision-making happens a lot mm-hmm. quicker because you already have buy-in from all the key decision-makers and all the way down. And then the blowback, even if there is some, is not as bad as it would be otherwise. Mm. Just because people feel like they have an ability to to voice their concerns, have their say, and so on. Yeah, you get in a room and you say, all right, look, I, I truly believe in my program. I, I see the data and you get, you kind of like you're in, in the hall of fame voting right? Mm-hmm. for the football where like you get 15 minutes to make your pitch and people are at least going to listen to you and you can either use the data to back it up or you can come up with another reason, but at least you have your chance to make your say. And you all, in the end, you're going to understand why the decision was made. Not just like, Oh my, the president said he doesn't like this quote program and cut it. You have the data backing you up behind you to really understand exactly why that decision was made. Okay. And going back to what you said before, it, it's, it sounds like the data to back you up is important. The data isn't, it's not all about the data. Like you said, it's not data driven necessarily. Everything's subsumed under, well, we just have to do what the data tell us. It's, you know, it, it's the data is an important piece, but there are other pieces too. Exactly. And I mean, one of the most interesting things that we kind of discovered recently is everybody thinks if you cut programs, you are going to save money. That's actually about as far from the truth as you can get, because just about every single academic program is revenue positive, which we just discovered probably in the last two years when we really dove deep into our economics. So all of a sudden now you have these people redlining these programs. It's like, but you're going to lose the revenue that comes with these programs. And so that is something else we kind of had to change our methodology over the years and it's kind of expanded as what we've lost. And we found is you don't always have to cut programs. If you really want to dig deep into the course level, that is where you can find the true savings. And you you be kind of become this lean, easily moving university where you can move your adjuncts around very easily. You can make sure that your professors are getting the most bang for their buck by teaching the larger courses. 
and you can find real savings there without taking the hit of cutting a whole program. That's something we've definitely also learned over the years that we we really thought, all right, like everybody else kind of does, all right, you cut this program, you're going to save that money. The truth is sometimes those kids leave from the program or we found one program that made money and it had it really had like very few students because the students took so many other courses from other programs. Like they mm-hmm. took writing here or they took business here and stuff. So the when you really get down to the economics that we learned so much recently about how to make a university much more lean. Really interesting. Really interesting. And, and, you know, like I said up top, I, it would seem like those sort of insights are just going to become more and more important given not just not just COVID, which has thrown education on every level into sort of topsy-turvy term, turmoil, right? But like, like you said, even before COVID, I think higher education especially was really facing some difficulties, just the rising costs. And what I, what I, I think I sense is a kind of growing growing concern amongst students and parents about the debt level, uh, just the, the value you're getting given, given the cost increase so that universities more than ever need to have as much insight as possible into how to, you know, improve their product and, and be economically sound. You, you hit the nail on the head. And I mean, one of the other things that really is, is making sure underrepresented students have more access to higher education is a huge push. And if you have the data and if you have the kind of the processes in place to manage your academic program portfolio, you can find ways to really help those kids get into your school. You can achieve curricular efficiency where you have a very, I would say, nimble academic program portfolio, which you can adjust very easily to see what happens with changing trends versus before you would literally change programs based on your gut or what a, an employer opened in your state, stuff like that, which was good for them but now with the the way data is why not optimize it as much as possible to get the most uh, i would say bang for your buck i mean higher ed is really at a crossroads i would say and figuring out exactly the best path forward but i think they're really embracing it and they want to do well by their kids students and that's mm-hmm. what i've hear over and over again from these universities they would like to lower costs they would like to get more kids in the schools and they would really like to see a change throughout all of this it's just it's a new way of thinking of things. Absolutely. Okay, Ned, let's let's wrap things up. Final thoughts. What's a main takeaway for our listeners from our discussion today? I would say the, the biggest thing when it comes to engagement is you have to build trust with your audience. We, we do a lot of emails, just like everybody else. Email marketing is one of our key things. Every email we've sent out, if it's on the sales side of an email, it will be something customized to that school where they will have a piece of knowledge that they will gain from opening our email. And if it's on the big, bold marketing side with the bigger email blast, it will have some generalist piece of knowledge that they can take away. So somebody's not just opening your email and like kind of knowing it's a sales email, knowing it's a marketing email. They will still, because they know who you are, they know they're going to learn something either about higher education or they're going to learn something specifically about their school when they open that email. So that right there builds that trust and also helps with your um, unsubscribe rate as much as possible. And then the other thing is, I would say is the other thing about engagement is what we do a lot of, I would tell everybody is know your audience as much as possible. There's a million new products out there constantly you can be exposed to. And one unique thing I discovered in terms of engagement, we don't do as well with video um, or we don't do as well as we could because what we do, we made, we made a bunch of our blogs into video blogs and people 
like mm-hmm. reading in my industry. They are used to consuming books. They're used to consuming white papers and stuff like that. So the videos, we really got, we did a survey and they'd rather read. They'd rather have the images and understand the data and the, even the tables that are in them versus looking or hearing a video. They ended up watching the video at two to three times speed because they just got kind of bored with it. So I would say really know your audience. We have found, we have had success with um, mm-hmm. being guests on podcasts for one reason was they don't have to worry about the visuals as much and they can listen to that way. But you really just got to kind of, what is the key way your audience consumes your thought leadership or your content? Yeah. Know your audience, right? That's one of the 10 commandments of marketing or or (laughs) however many commandments there are. Right. Love it. Well, Ned, thank you so much for a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yes, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day. That's it for this episode of Engage Your Tribe. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. You know you want to. If you're a marketer or an internal communicator and you're interested in podcasting, we've got tons of free resources on the website at tribknowledge.com. That's T-R-I-B knowledge.com. Thanks for listening and staying engaged.